Love this podcast? Support this show through the supporter feature from Acast. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the only podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. Your host, Roberto Matza, will bring you guests discussing their relationship with the Holy City. A journey through history, society, feelings, and hopes for the future. Follow the podcast on all social media platforms at Jerusalem Unplugged. Welcome to Jerusalem Unplugged, the podcast dedicated to Jerusalem, its history, and its people. I'm your host, Roberto Mazza, and today my guest is Maya De Vries. Maya is an ethnographic researcher. Her interests are in social media, digital activism, Israeli-Palestinian conflict, and Jerusalem Al-Quds. She's teaching at the Swiss Center for Conflict Resolution and at the Department of Communication at Hebrew University in Jerusalem. Maya loves documentary making, and she believes in the power of this genre in order to create waves of change, and she's involved in the Israeli-Palestinian cinematic project. She's currently working on a long-term ethnographic research in East Jerusalem, focusing on aging and elderly and their relations with digital platforms. Maya, welcome. Hi, Roberto. Hi, everyone. Thanks for having me. Um, super, super exciting uh, to be here with you. Maya, the only and first question I always ask to all my guests is, what is your Jerusalem? In other words, what is your connection with the city? Um, well, what a vast question. Um, I'm not sure that I have one answer. Um, Maybe I'll come to it from my personal perspective. I was born here in Jerusalem, but um, my parents uh, came back to their hometown, Tel Aviv, when I was six months old. So I didn't uh, grow up here in the city, but uh, as an adult, um, as an Israeli adult, to be honest, I felt that I must know the city um, you know, through walking its streets. Um, so I chose to come here um, to study here, and I stayed. Um, I stayed for the past 13 years. I live here. 
Um, and I feel, um, I would say, very calm here. Um, it's sort of a dissonance because it's such an, an hectic um, contested space. But something um, with the mountains um, makes me feel calm most of the time. <laughs> and we, we will uh, speak about it uh, probably further down the road here. Um, but I would say uh, it's, the, it's the connection to the mountains. That's my Jerusalem. I find it fascinating that you're talking about Jerusalem as a calming place. I must I say that my own experiences of a hectic and uh, I would say complex. I don't want to delve into other terms, but uh, it's it's a complicated place to go around. So uh, it is. It's, I think it's pleasing to hear that there is another dimension, you know, to see the city also from the perspective of something that may calm your nerves uh looking at the uh, mountains which i guess it's it's a possibility right yeah yeah um i agree um and that's why i i said it's a it's a vast you know it's a vast question but um if i want to take the positive side of life which i usually try to do um so that would be my first choice to to you know to to reply to your question that I'm happy to be here, um, to be part of this um, contested city. I would use the word contested and not just complicated city because it is contested. Um, and as, as an Israeli, I probably can say much more freely and easily um, that it's, it is a coming place for me. Um, I'm not sure if I was a Palestinian living in the city, I can answer, um, you know, um, similarly, <laughs> uh, that it, it is a coming place for me, but I don't know, I'm not a Palestinian. Um, I live in the Western side of the city, in a very calm, calm neighborhood full of families um, and parks, and you can, you know, open the door and sort of turn your gaze um, away from the conflictual situations in the city. So that's why I think I have this choice of saying to you, it is a coming place for me. I think something in the Corona period, in the COVID-19 period, this crazy, crazy year, we all been experiencing around the globe um, like made me look at the topography of the city kind of differently because all of the sudden the way to the university to Mount Scalps was you know it's not relevant the university is close we are just inside our computers from home um, teaching and all of a sudden I had I would say a different geo geographical experience of the city. Um, I was using less the car. I was walking much more. I was experiencing my neighborhood. Um, I was using all of a sudden the Armona Nativ uh, prom promenade, um, 
where you have the UN uh, quarters, headquarters. Um, I, I don't want to say like I discovered the city because I didn't. I know the city. I live here for 13 years and I walk around uh, also in the east side and also in the west side. But I think that, you know, some, the fact that we were all forced to be in one spot for so many days gave me that different perspective of a sort of discovery or rediscovering the neighborhood in a way. I don't know if it's a bit too amorphic. Um, I have two uh, boys, uh, um, elementary uh, school, their age. Uh, so, you know, we had many, many days at home, um, as you can probably imagine. I guess we all shared, those of us with kids, uh, enjoying more time, but also other pro problems at home with kids. Yeah. I was fascinated by the fact that several times you mentioned your walks around the city, pre-COVID, post-COVID, and indeed we're going to talk about COVID, that is, it is part of your work. But I want to focus on this question about walking around the city. Maya de Vries walking around Jerusalem. What are your eyes seeing? How is Jerusalem filtered through your view? The city is sort of divided. Um, as people might know, uh, maybe hearing your previous podcast or also just reading about Jerusalem and about the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, um, you have here the, the, the eastern side and the western side of the city, and they're sort of, they're not connecting, um, although they are connecting um, because people cross sides. Uh, Palestinians cross side, the side much more because they have to work in the western side of the city and Israelis go less to um, the, the, the east part of Jerusalem. However, um, when you are deciding as an Israeli, as a researcher, as an ethnographer, um, that you really genuinely want to see what's going on on the other side, um, then you must cross the borders. Um, and you have, or the, un, you know, the unseen borders, I would say. Um, the fact that I speak Arabic helps me a lot. Um, it reduces uh, the fear, um, just in terms of walking around the streets and understanding what people um, talking around me in Arabic. Um, and, and obviously, having the possibility to develop conversation, uh, you know, with people around you in shops, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. So it seems like a very simple thing to do, um, but um, but actually it's not. <laughs> it's not obvious uh, here to speak Arabic. Um, so I would say um, walking the streets of Jerusalem as a secular person, first of all, <laughs> um, brings out the fact that I am secular. I feel as a, as a minority in the city. Um, I know it sounds uh, a bit awkward maybe, um, but um, it is a very religious space. Um, and it comes out 
in the clothes and also in the color, you know, that people are just wearing. It's much more modest and um, it's um, it's less, it's not shouting, <laughs> I'm here. On the contrary, people are sort of um, veiling them, themselves. Um, not necessarily just Muslims, but also uh, Jews and Christians. It's very modest. Um, so I think, you know, this is definitely one thing that I felt uh, from the very first year that I came to live in Jerusalem. And I sort of got used to it. There is another, I would say, an artifact <laughs> or or an object that I think that I see a lot when walking down the streets of Jerusalem, no matter which, you know, which neighborhood, etc. cetera, uh, which is, it's the scarf. So it might be the fact that I'm a woman and I see it as a woman also, but I use the scarf myself much more after living in Jerusalem. Um, so it's also because it's just much more colder here, even in the summer. So you have to, you know, cover your shoulders and your neck. But also, um, if you're wearing short sleeves and all of a sudden you feel uncomfortable as a secular, um, the scarf is very, you know, <laughs> useful in these moments. And when you cross borders, again, doesn't matter which neighborhood, okay, Jewish, religious, Israeli, Palestinian, never mind now. Um, I felt that the scarf was a very, it was my friend <laughs> um, many, many times. And it's really difficult for me um, to leave the house without a scarf. I am amazed by your description of Jerusalem in terms of colors and reminds me of the stark contrast of this so-called uh, Jerusalem white stone and, you know, the character of a city of being white. But it's true when you walk around black or it's dark black. colors are the dominant colors. I mean, between the Haredi Jews, but also uh, Muslim women's veiling and Christian pilgrims who <clears throat> tend to wear uh, dark clothing. And, you know, regardless, men and women, they tend to cover themselves with this kind of like dark color representing the passion of Christ, particularly if they tour the city through a pilgrimage. Um, something I never thought about it. It's, uh, it's impressive. Really? Um, uh, thank you. Um, I mean, we're doing here like, you know, we're generali generalizing um, the reality, but still, um, um, I grew up in Tel Aviv and it was so different in terms of colors. Um, it's just, you, you have this, you, you occupy yourself with how you will come across when you walk out the street. And, and again, talking from my personal perspective and experience, uh, you know, as a teenager, as a young, as a, as a young adult in Tel Aviv, etc. Um, but uh, I think, you know, I think my kids feel it as well when we come visiting my parents in Tel Aviv. They, they, they already get a difference. Um, the last holiday was, uh, you know, was a proof. The Purim, <laughs> you know, people are even costuming differently. Um, so yeah, it's it's black, but not necessarily in a depressing way. Um, 
I mean, for sure, we can say it's black and it's hard, and then the stone is hard, and the you know the the burden of of the monotheism and the burden of the conflict um, is you know on the people's shoulder here all the time. People are carrying it, which is true. Um, but again, it's it's I think it's also a situation when because of the religion or like due to the religion you you just you tend to occupy yourself with other things in life not judging it in a positive or negative way but just you know you will wear something else less attracting i was just reminded of my trips whenever i i'm in israel i i spend time in bersheva mm-hmm. and often i have to go for work to jerusalem and then ramallah and, and now I was visualizing this change of colors from Bersheva, mm-hmm. the mm. reddish of the desert, but also the regular life. And then the drive to Jerusalem, I normally park in East Jerusalem in front of a YMCA in order to catch a bus to Ramallah. And you get that sense, you know, also the tension that you, you have in Jerusalem. It's not just the traffic, but the, the tension. And once past the checkpoint of Kalandia, it's like changing mood once again. It's, you know, it's a city bustling with the people moving, the colors, the smells, and the greenish color, because we, we are now the hills, the hills, the mountains that we were talking about earlier. Uh, fascinating trip. I, I really never thought about in this term. Mm. I, I want to move to your work. You mm-hmm. recently published a blog post, which I found fascinating and I think very important, discussing the situation of COVID-19 in East Jerusalem. Mm-hmm. Can you tell us what's going on? How's the city under COVID and how's the division between East Jerusalem and the rest of the city? How, did COVID uh, affect the population in different ways in how the vaccination campaign is moving forward? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, I'm not updated with the recent numbers, but gen- again, generally speaking, um, there is a difference here between the Palestinian population and the Israeli population. Uh, Israelis are getting more and more the the vaccinations. Um, Again, not all Israelis. You have still ultra-Orthodox who won't take it. Um, But it's still more than the Palestinians. and the gap, you know, is related to a serious situation of fake news circulating throughout various uh, social media platforms, uh, mainly WhatsApp, uh, which was uh, popular until they decided to change their regulations and people moved to Telegram like a week ago or two weeks ago. But still, WhatsApp is very dominant here and also Facebook. Um, uh, And when I'm thinking, you know, when I'm saying fake news, um, um, it's really posts and images and uh, really misleading information about what the vaccine can do to you. Um, All written in Arabic. Um, Some of it is related to the local politics of the conflict. Um, you know, it's uh, Bibi will do this and that, etc., etc. But not just um, because 
um, there was sort of, um, uh, again, misleading um, medical information and biological information of what the, the vaccine can do to you. A, a student of mine um, wrote a really interesting paper of, uh, about a Facebook page in Arabic uh, that its aim is to reveal fake news, you know, um, and it was so active during the, I mean, it still is during the COVID-19 period. Um, so you have here a really bad mix of, you know, lack of trust between Palestinians and the Israeli authorities, because at the end of the day, the, the you know, the person uh, that's ad adhering and calling the people to take the vaccinations, the vaccines is uh, Bibi Netanyahu and uh, the, the Ministry of Health, etc., etc. And usually they will speak in Hebrew. And the first announcements of the, the Ministry of Health will be in Hebrew, etc., etc. And it took time to have all this information translated into Arabic. And at the very beginning, you had um, like an independent um, organizations here of, of uh, activists and like local leaders um, that just took upon themselves to to help people to understand what's going on now it's it's different because we are at the top of this crazy pandemic at the i, I mean at the top of um of how to deal with this pandemic in terms of the world right or how people present it here um, because we have so many uh vaccines that we can give away uh, but yet, uh, people, not all of the people are coming to take it. It's, it's a big question why, and why still it's not, it's not solved, the lack of trust, and why the fake news are so, so strong uh, within this population of East Jerusalem, of Palestinian from East Jerusalem. It's, it's a big question. It is, you know, it's changing. Um, but uh, if you think about uh, Israeli Palestinians who live inside Israel, inside the 48 uh, territories, using this kind of terminology here, um, you have the same situation. Even though the vaccine is for free, everyone, you know, are using the same uh, health clinics. Also here in East Jerusalem, uh, I, I use Klalit Health Clinic, and you have a big branch of Klalit in Sheikh Jarrah, and you can take the vaccine there, and it's the same, um, and yet it's not. I was wondering if you think this is uh, due to the politics, or there's also a bigger role played by conspiracy theory? Mm -hmm. So I think it, it's, it's both. I think, um, I think it's the politics. It's first of all, um, you offer me something and I'll be suspicious about it um, because of the politics, because of the conflict, because we are stronger than the Palestinians in East Jerusalem. Stronger, I mean, in terms of uh, bureaucracy, in terms of, uh, of deciding the rights of Palestinians, etc., etc. 
I also I also think, and I'm I have to be very careful here and very um, you know modest um, again because I, I'm an Israeli and my baseline of of conversation and discourse is not Palestinian at the end of the day. Um, although I read the language and my aim is to understand as much as I can. Um, so when I think of conspiracy theories, um, I I don't think that I can say it's just one conspiracy theory. I think it's a bunch of posts that are really made the people to be be very afraid um, of, you know, that a chip will be um, uh, inside their body after taking the vaccine, etc. You you also had very similar posts in Hebrew and also in English, um, so it's not um, it's not a surprise. But again, in the in the Israeli side, it was less less. Uh, it had it had less impact at the end of the day. Maybe it will you know it will be a bigger change now. Um, I'm not sure. Before we move to another topic, I just wonder if you're your from your own perspective, from your own professional point of view, and I and I certainly sympathize with the fact that you are taking a step back. You're an Israeli, as you said. You certainly have access to the language and the Palestinian community. What is the legacy? What do you think may be the legacy of COVID-19 for East Jerusalem? So I'll, I will be speaking about the field site that I have been working um, in the past two years, which I won't tell you its name in order to keep, uh, you know, to keep the people uh, anonymous. Um, but uh, in the research, uh, the, we called it uh, Dar el Hawa. So what um, me and my colleague Laila, Dr. Laila Abedrabo, uh, saw there is that um, I, I would say a few things. Um, first of all, uh, you had an immediate um, mobilization of the community. And I think it happened in all sorts of places around the globe. I know for sure that in my neighborhood it happened as well. So youngsters and people who, you know, were already taking um, um, active uh, roles in, within the community, all of a sudden pushed everyone um, to help the, old, the older people of the community. So that was um, a very moving thing uh, to see. Um, it's, you know, it didn't come out of nothing. Um, my co the community that I was researching um, for two years is, is well known in this kind of delicate um, relationships among, you know, the, uh, the people. Also because it has a lot of kinship. Uh, with one another, um, which is very um, a common thing in East Jerusalem, that you will live in the same you will live in the same neighborhood or village, and it will be all sort of branch of of your family. Um, however, um, that was in the very beginning of the COVID nineteen. You know, 
everyone was at home helping each other, uh, the communities together, etc., etc. But after a while, I would say the first closure, which was around two months, I think, or maybe a bit longer. Um, I don't really, I don't remember now. Um, you saw, you started to see um, a sort of a, a resistance uh, to the regulations and to the instructions. So still you had the community there um, in various levels, like you have, I'm part of a WhatsApp group, so of, of older people in this specific field site. So I see what, I saw what's going on and the activities that they try to do via Zoom, et cetera, et cetera. But I was also seeing, um, reading the news, reading the local Facebook page, um, making conversation with younger people there, et cetera, et cetera. And um, the, the, there was a resistance there of uh, not, not following instructions, not following instructions in terms of wearing a mask, uh, social distancing, um, followed by not taking uh, the vaccination, not taking the vaccine. Um, why I think it's the politics of the conflict um, that, you know, um, we cannot trust you, we cannot believe you, you're, it's not the truth, um, but also because I think that sometimes, not all the times, um, usually the police, sometimes maybe the border police, um, didn't really enter the neighborhood um, in order to enforce, um, you know, that the instructions. So maybe it was also part of that. I would say a sort of a resistance to the authorities. We're going to take a short break. Please remember to join our Facebook page at Jerusalem Unplugged, as well as our Twitter and Instagram accounts. And if you have any idea for a future podcast, someone you want me to interview or a topic that you want me to develop, please get in touch. Remember, enjoy, share, subscribe. Thank you for listening. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewelry. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewelry of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweler since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. We charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Uh, it is an interesting parallel with other countries who followed more or less the same path. So a very long lockdown and then ease the restrictions and then going back into a lockdown. Uh, yeah. And I noticed in a number of European countries, those who had the same pattern, that is exactly the same sort of uh, behavior that people adopt yeah. at first. They followed the rules and then for different reasons, uh, they decided not to. Uh, certainly in America it's different. We never really had a, a full lockdown. Therefore, it's hard to speak really sure. to, to share the same because it, it was never really everything closed. Sure. There were always avenues, particularly in some states, where people had more freedom and, and therefore never experienced this uh, first wave, second wave, or third wave. Yep. My, I want to move to another topic. Mm-hmm. You gave a talk uh, a few months ago, uh, and you were talking about uh, bilingualism. Mm-hmm. You mentioned that you have two boys, and as far as I know, they attend a bilingual school. Yad Bayad, hand in hand. Yad Bayad, yes. Gosh, I, I wrote it. Yes, that's right. And I was not even able to read my own uh, handwriting, <laughs> uh, as usual, I must say. Why choosing a bilingual school? What is bilingualism in Jerusalem in the 21st century? Um, Okay, so choosing hand-in-hand school uh, is an ideological uh, choice for both me and my husband. Um, So going into a Jewish-Arab school um, is going against the the stream or against the the norm here, we have um, different schools usually for Arabs uh, and Jews. The 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 education system is uh, is divided. Um, actually, both of my kids went to the YMCA school, uh, which is a Jewish Arab kindergarten. Uh, in King, King David Street, where you park your car when you come to Jerusalem. So uh, for five years before they started elementary school, they attended a Jewish-Arab kindergarten. And again, it was an ideological choice for us. Both of my husband and myself are speaking Arabic, um, Out again, out of choice, out of individual um studies that we did, not because we were in the intelligence forces of the Israeli army, which usually when an Israeli speaks Arabic, um, 
um, the the immediate thought and and concept that you know he or her went to the intelligence forces for two or three years. So uh, we didn't do that, and um, it actually when you know when I research and when I meet other parents in the school and I speak Arabic, so it really helps me. Um, um, the fact that I wasn't taking part uh, in the intelligence forces and that my Arabic is not from there. It's from a different situation of, you know, being just a person that wants to know the language. Um, it helps me also with uh, my students at the Hebrew University. Um, just to know the language, but also um, they're really afraid when I start um, speaking Arabic at the first time before they know me. And then I have to explain, I'm sorry, uh, yeah, I'm, it's not from the intelligence forces. Um, so, yeah, I would say it's an ideological choice uh, of just recognizing uh, the mere fact that we are not alone here. Um, not, Of course, not in Jerusalem, but also in, in Israel. Um, and there are, there are just other people that... Uh, might be very helpful to to understand what they are thinking, um, saying, uh, to make acquaintance and friendships with them. Other other bilingual uh, countries have chosen, you know, paths to teach the same classes in two languages, like the example of Belgium, where Flemish mm -hmm. and French are taught at the same level. Mixed results, uh, but is also part of a cultural context. Yet they keep, you know, focusing on this dual uh, teaching. Do you see a future of bilingualism and teaching in both languages, uh, you know, in Israel and Palestine, but more importantly in Jerusalem? Do you think this could be the path to a, some sort of a form of reconciliation? Uh, it's it really it's hard for me to imagine. Um, such an action around, you know, schools in Jerusalem. Also in Palestinian schools, not all of them. Uh, usually you will find Palestinians that know, you know, that they know Hebrew much better than Israelis knowing Arabic because it's just they need to know Hebrew. Um, so it's always uh, like that. The minority needs to mobilize itself and to take care uh, of himself. Um, if it will, you know, if we'll have this utopia of uh, schools uh, <laughs> equal, teaching equal Hebrew and Arabic, um, if it will lead to a reconciliation, um, a little bit. It's very difficult um, to think of such situation of uh, reconciliation. It's really difficult to imagine in this very, um, in this moment of the conflict, uh, which is completely confusing because you have this agenda of two-state solution, but when you live in Jerusalem and you travel around the West Bank, which you did also uh, when you were visiting here, Roberto, so you, I think you understand how difficult uh, it will be. Uh, to go that path.
I think also, um, um, sorry, just to, I have this thought that I have to um, take out. Um, I think also in our school, it's very, it's, you know, it's not equal. Um, my kids, they understand Arabic, um, but it's difficult to read. They don't have to use Arabic because all of their Palestinian teachers can speak Hebrew. And the Hebrew is very dominant. Um, and it's dominant because the asymmetrical situation of the conflict and it goes inside the school. It's really hard to to avoid that. Um, so it's not perfect also in our school and they are working on it actually um, to try to change that uh, problem. <laughs> yeah. I was actually going to echo what you were just saying because I'm I'm going to open to my uh, sort of uh, uh, family here. My um, sister-in-law is one of the founder of the Agar School, uh, which is another bilingual school. And uh, one of my main criticism has always been the fact that while the school works greatly, and I really love what they're doing, but the moment kids stop going to school, there is no avenue to keep uh, speaking or reading Arabic because in the end even their Palestinian friends and counterparts uh, particularly in the context of Beersheba where you have uh, some Bedouins or other Palestinians from the north that move there for work mm -hmm. but they, they end up to speak Hebrew because it is yeah. the dominant language and, and you're right this reflects the uh, asymmetry of the conflict where obviously you have one dominant side and even the good deeds of working on the language then they are diminished by the fact that there's no alternative, essentially. Uh, and yet, I believe this is a great uh, move forward. I mean, the, the more people can access the language, the better. Uh, I agree. I agree with you. Um, I agree. Um, I, I feel it every day. Every day I feel it. Um, especially here in Jerusalem, um, you know. We are moving towards the end of this conversation. Um, you're an ethnographer, but you also work on uh, media. You're, I guess, a journalist also, media journalist. I was wondering if you have uh, anything, you know, to share, perhaps related to your work, uh, related to the relationship between media, social media, and Jerusalem. How does the city feature in social media? How do, how do social media influence the city? So I'll, I'll speak... Uh, about East Jerusalem mainly because that was my you know my focus uh, in the research um, so it it is it has its impact definitely um, and as in the rest of the world uh, this impact is changing um, because it, it you know if you're thinking now we are what 2021 um, Six years ago, seven years ago, um, um, Facebook was much more uh, salient in the region. It still is, but its role changed. Um, so, I mean, if you're thinking of Facebook here in 2014, right, when you had um, um, the, the, the Gaza war, 
um, but also the, the very difficult violent situation we had here in Jerusalem uh, with uh, Muhammad Abu Khader, um, etc. Um, you know, people were expressing themselves quite harshly uh, via Facebook, um, politically wise. Um, and you had many, many Facebook pages and groups also, but a lot of pages of people broadcasting their news and calling other people to take part and to, to be very active online. Um, quickly enough, um, again, because we control, we, I mean Israel, controls um, also the social media, but also controls offline, underground, um, people uh, stopped sharing and stopped expressing themselves um, about politics mainly. So it also happens today, right? You think twice and three times and even five times before you write politics online. Unless you are a journalist on Twitter and that's your job. But as an ordinary person, as a lecturer, as a teacher, I mean, you don't have to be Palestinian to think before you write. Um, because, I mean, we all understood, you know, the, the, the ramifications um, it, it might have on our lives. But, and again, I'm careful here. Uh, I think Palestinians here, at least in East Jerusalem, understood, and understood that as a minority group, uh, a little bit before me, you know, uh, the, the, the fact, you know, it has a serious impact about, impact about their lives. Um, I'm talking about political arrests, um, you know, uh, losing your job, um, being monitored and also um, being monitored by the state, but also being monitored by your family. Um, because it might have, you know, ramifications about uh, on your family. And also as a woman, um, you have to be much more careful um, when sharing, when expressing yourself, etc. And again, yes, people were expressing also about, you know, uh, violent actions. And we say here in Hebrew terrorism online, it's not my research um so it will be difficult for me to you know to 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 say exactly what i think about it but definitely you have that side also and it it was also on facebook again it's cha it, it changed platforms <laughs> as in the rest of the world um but i think it happened a bit before the rest of the world here um now, I mean, TikTok is very strong and um, Facebook is Facebook. You read the news there, your family is there um, and you still want to be there because you don't want to miss information, you know, like the FOMO thing. Um, but um, WhatsApp is very, very strong being part of a group, having the, the option of, of personal communication. Um, and Telegram also uh, took its, its tone also during COVID-19 because, for example, uh, the Ministry of Health opened the channel in Arabic uh, in Telegram. So I know um, people were using that. 
would it change uh, the world social media a bit <laughs> a little bit um, but I, I, I'm I'm not I'm not optimistic that it will change uh, you know the the political situation here I guess it's like using a an Instagram filter sometimes we we try to change the appearance right but yeah so the reality is different in the end exactly exactly um, so yeah, I don't know if it's a filter or if it's a, a plaster, a band-aid <laughs> of um, making our life nicer, easier, etc. But um, I mean, it helps. Um, it sort of helps of escaping, you know, um, the conflictual situation here many, many times, and just you know, um, have your life on Instagram. I know it from my students. Uh, I'm not an Instagrammer <laughs> at all. I, I, I missed that, uh, that step. <laughs> um, but uh, I had many conversations with my Palestinian students. I have two courses at the university teaching only Palestinians from East Jerusalem who were ex accepted to the university with the Palestinian um, grade, which is a new thing at the Hebrew University. Um, and they're using Instagram a lot. Um, and it was part of the conversation. It's just, you know, moving away uh, my thoughts from the situation here. I have two more questions and, you know, you can elaborate as much as you want on them. One is about your work. I, I know you're a very young lecturer and you're developing all of these teams. And I wonder if you can share perhaps a little bit what, what are your next projects, particularly fair related to Jerusalem. And then after that, I have one, okay. one last personal question. Okay. Um, so first of all, I'm actually in the middle of working uh, uh, on a monograph, um, writing that, that ethnography we did, uh, me and Dr. Abed Rabo in Dar el Hawa, which is about old people and their digital experience as non-native digital <laughs> um, uh, and the politics is very very strong there although they are old and they are not you know uh, activists in that matter but uh, the fact that they experience both 48 war and also the occupation or unification of Jerusalem in 67 um, has its tone on their course of life and on their way they use um, digital media. Um, part of it uh, is because of the language. So if you were in Jerusalem after the 48 uh, war, um, they will know Hebrew much more than their friends who were, you know, uh, occupied in 67. Um, so that's that's a very interesting uh, project that I'm working on, and it's uh, a collaboration also with uh, University College uh, London, uh, led by uh, Daniel Miller, Professor Miller. Um, and I'm also working of um, a project that I started with my within my PhD dissertation, um, uh, again with a colleague. Um, of what, what makes people not to participate online. Um, and we are focusing 
also uh, about you know the the social political uh, circumstances and not just uh, the politics you know the mere politics of the conflict which is sort of stating the obvious but we're we're trying to get more deeper um, into you know their decisions of when do I write when do I don't write etc uh, and it will also have a gender perspective in it. Yeah. Fascinating. I see you have a very busy agenda. Um, so I certainly wish you luck with that. I have one last Thank question. You. Just to go back to the beginning, you were talking about your walks around Jerusalem, the calming effect of the city. You were talking about the mountains. So if you were to name, let's say, two of your favorite spots in Jerusalem, what they would be? Okay, so I thought about it. <laughs> so um, the first place it will be pronoun here, the Armona Native pronoun, uh, which is five minutes uh, walk from my apartment. And here I can really say that I discovered it during the COVID-19, during this really crazy year. Um, beautiful place you see you have this view of the old city um, but also it's open usually and and you can just sit and have a picnic there um, and you have you know you just have a variety of people coming from Jabal Mukaber from Arnona neighborhood um, and from Abu Tor uh, from down um, so it's sort of a nature within the city and a green place within the city. It's coming and and uh, and not coming at the same time because you see the old city and you you cannot forget um, you know what <laughs> what the conflict is about. So I think that will be the first um, the first spot and and the second spot is a little cafe that um, I really like to go uh, there. Silo uh, Cafe, uh, and happily and luckily they were open the entire uh, COVID situation uh, because they have this really nice yard. So it was, you know, they didn't um, break any rules uh, within COVID-19. So I think, uh, I think it was, you know, a little island of sanity, of urban, normal urban life, within the pandemic, but also within this contested space of Jerusalem. This was Maya De Vries. Thank you for your contribution to Jerusalem Unplugged. Thank you, Roberto. Thank you. While we wait for the next episode of Jerusalem Unplugged, please remember to subscribe to the podcast, Spotify, Amazon Music, iTunes, and all of the other platforms for which the podcast is available. Please also remember to like the Facebook page and subscribe to the feed Jerusalem Unplugged and also to follow us on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you. Until the next podcast.
Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style.